The Literate Caveman, Episode 26 Frames of Mind, The Theory of Multiple Intelligences by Howard Gardner Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, with a focus on mindset for daily life. I'm your host, Chad Blake, and today I'm going to introduce Frames of Mind, The Theory of Multiple Intelligences by Howard Gardner. I started reading this book just before the pandemic hit. I got a few chapters into it, then got really busy trying to salvage my career. It has been sitting on one of my shelves, taunting me ever since. I am excited to bring it to you now, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Today, I am going to introduce the book, the theory behind it, and some of the foundational considerations of the author. Over the next few weeks, we will explore a few of the chapters of the book, finishing with the conclusions of the author. Looking over the table of contents, I expect this to take about seven to eight weeks. I am not going to review each chapter of the book like I did with The Logic of Failure. This is a much longer book, and I believe we can review it without approaching it that way. Of course, my intention in these episodes is not to simply read any particular book for you, but to introduce people to books they may not be aware of and provide some discussion for them. Right off the bat, I have to say this is a very well-written, well-thought-out text. Gardner is very verbose, and I have had to look up more words from this text than I think just about any book I have read. I think one of the reasons I have enjoyed reading it is because Gardner is not stuck in a dry, modern-day scientific rut. He makes several references to literature, and he is aware of works spanning the classical area, the medieval period, up through the Renaissance, and of course modern times. I do not enjoy this simply because I appreciate literature, but also because I feel it displays a well-rounded, thorough grasp of what makes intellect. A quick comparison. Sometimes, when I find a movie or a show that I like, I enjoy watching the special features of how a project was made. You can learn a lot this way. Sometimes, you get insight into what a director or producer wanted to get across, and other times, you discover a director is so dysfunctional, it is amazing they were able to direct anything. But the comparison that relates directly to what I am trying to say about Gardner, sometimes, you find a director or actor or even a producer, who really understands their subject. Someone who has really studied storytelling and they think about each detail that goes into their medium and tries to make every scene count towards telling a compelling or entertaining story. I think people like this can make even a very simple story entertaining or poignant. On the other hand, once in a while, you might observe an interview with an individual who seems to have no knowledge of their field prior to their own work. Someone who thinks they broke a certain mold or stereotype sometime in the 2000s. Seemingly, with no knowledge whatsoever of films made in the 70s, 80s, or even the 90s. You do not have to be a film critic or an expert to spot these people. It just requires having happened to watch half of one film that had already broken whatever stereotype is in question and it makes the person making the claim seem really foolish. I do not know if you relate to this or not. The point is, when you have a chance to learn from someone who has a broad understanding of their subject, and at least a passing knowledge of work that has taken place before their own, 
it lends a lot of credibility to their opinions. Now, this book addresses Howard Gardner's theory that humans do not operate on a single overarching intelligence, but possess identifiable, specific, separate intelligences that work together on a daily basis. In some people, one of these intelligences might be highly developed. In some people, one or more of these might be subdued for a variety of reasons. One of the things that drew me to this book was the idea that a person can be brilliant in one area of life and have deficiencies in other areas. An easy example of this for my own profession would be a professional athlete who possesses amazing physical abilities, but at the same time makes consistently wretched life choices. In balance, most of the athletes I worked with during my strength and conditioning career were quite intelligent, and the majority of them were... A lot of them were devoted parents. They were good husbands. There were definitely a couple narcissists, and there were a couple of people that were pretty dysfunctional. But in balance, most of them were people you would not mind having in your personal life on a social level. But I am sure you have heard of an example at one time or another, which makes the comparison of somebody who's very skilled physically or in another area and makes horrible decisions for their personal life make sense. You could change the label to actors or business people or whatever. If not, no worries. By the end of this series, I am confident you'll be able to think of one example or another that gives support to Gardner's theory. Of course, you may disagree with the theory. It is certainly not universally accepted. In the opening chapters of the book, Gardner names a few researchers who disagree with him. As of today's recording, I have not looked into any of these counterarguments. I may at some point, but my purpose is not so much to provide an argument for or against the subject, but to review the book. I will say that this idea made sense to me when I first came across it, so it is probably fair to say I have a bias towards Gardner's theory. Now, what this theory competes with, at least in part, is the idea of the sanctity of the intelligence quotient, or IQ tests. That is, in fact, what Gardner begins with in part one of his book, so we will begin there. A quote from chapter one of the book. In the chapters that follow, I outline a new theory of human intellectual competences. This theory challenges the classical view of intelligence that most of us have absorbed explicitly from psychology or education texts, or implicitly by living in a culture with a strong but possibly circumscribed view of intelligence, end quote. The example Gardner opens the book with is that of a young girl taking an IQ test, the result of which has the ability to affect her life on many levels. As Gardner puts it, this number is likely to exert appreciable effect upon her future, influencing the way in which her teachers think of her and determining her elig eligibility for certain privileges. The importance attached to the number is not entirely inappropriate. After all, the score of an intelligence test does predict one's ability to handle school subjects, though it foretells little of success in later life. End quote. This reminds me of concerns C.S. Lewis expressed in one of his books about how the education system in England was increasingly moving away from innovation and creativity and focusing on the ability to succeed at taking tests. Lewis called this trend the rise of the managerial class, and went into some detail about how the education system was creating people 
who were good at taking tests and giving the answers teachers wanted to hear, not about deductive reasoning, logic, history, and so on. Returning to Howard Gardner's book, after discussing IQ tests and the importance they currently hold in the world, Gardner begins setting up his argument for a different approach. Quoting from the text, But what if one were to let one's imagination wander freely, to consider the wider range of performances that are in fact valued throughout the world? End quote. Following this quote, he provides a number of examples of people who display remarkable intelligence but do not possess a traditional Western education. Have you ever had a conversation with an old-school farmer, blacksmith, mechanic, or other blue-collar worker who surprised you with their level of knowledge? There have been many times when I have had the fortune of a conversation with a person who would not have a stereotypical label of intelligence and turned out to be highly intelligent. This can be a little surprising if you have already decided that because of the way someone is dressed, their speech patterns, or some other reason, such as their means of employment, that they are uneducated or unintelligent. I think the first time I experienced this was talking to a farmer in a small town I lived in in the early 90s. I cannot recall the subject of any of our conversations now, but I remember I learned not to prejudge someone because they dressed in overalls and dirty boots. A lot of people are very interesting and can express remarkable intelligence if you just ask the right questions and allow them to talk. One of the examples Gardner gives is that of a 12-year-old native of the Caroline Islands in the Pacific Ocean, who was selected by the elders of his tribe to learn how to become a master sailor. Navigation, sailing, using the stars and geography to navigate the hundreds of islands that form the region where he lives. From there, he gives the example of a youth who masters a difficult language, or a youth who learns how to compose music. I will share a fairly long quote from the text. A moment's reflection reveals that each of these individuals is attaining a high level of competence in a challenging field, and should, by any reasonable definition of the term, be viewed as exhibiting intelligent behavior. Yet it should be equally clear that current methods of assessing the intellect are not sufficiently well honed to allow assessment of an individual's potentials or achievements in navigating by the stars, mastering a foreign tongue, or composing music. The problem lies less in the technology of testing than in the ways in which we customarily think about the intellect and our ingrained views of intelligence. Only if we expand and reformulate our views of what counts as human intellect will we be able to devise more appropriate ways of assessing it and more effective ways of educating it, end quote. That quote sums up a lot of what Gardner feels is wrong with current standards of measuring intelligence. From here, he explains that he is not alone in some of these thoughts, and he has corresponded with people all over the world about the challenges of educating people in ways that will benefit individuals and society at large in the best ways possible. Gardner tells us that since ancient times, at the very least since the days of Plato and Socrates, in other words, for well over 2,000 years, the importance of mental prowess has been an important part of society. Going back a bit further, 
to Homer's time, we can stretch that from 800 BC, when Homer is believed to have been reciting his famous poems about people believed to have lived sometime between 1300 and 1184 BC, but an important part of being an adult was being able to articulate your ideas and express arguments in a logical and well-spoken way. Even in ancient Sparta, not typically known for intellect, part of the education of boys going through the agogi was learning laconic wit, the ability to express broad ideas in concise and sometimes humorous terms. All that to say, intellect has a long tradition of importance in many cultures over a long period of time. Quoting from the text, For well over 2,000 years, at least since the rise of the Greek city-state, a certain set of ideas has dominated discussions of the human condition in our civilization. This collection of ideas stresses the existence and the importance of mental powers, capacities that have been variously termed rationality, intelligence, or the development of mind. End quote. He shares a quote from the medieval period from St. Augustine. The prime author and mover of the universe is intelligence. Therefore, the final cause of the universe must be the good of the intelligence, and that is truth. End quote. From here, he provides a few more examples from literature of great thinkers considering the facets of intelligence. This leads to his distinction between people who view intellect as one piece and those who favor its fragmentation into several components. We will be referencing these terms a few times as we work through this text, so I encourage you to remember them. He takes the terms from the Greek poet Archilochus, with whom we have a fragment of a poem that states, The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Looking this quote up, and some comments people make on the quote, is moderately entertaining. I do not think I will spend any time overanalyzing the statement. It is a straightforward idea. Foxes are known to be clever, and they will use a lot of different tricks to get food in their stomachs. Whereas a hedgehog's one big thing is rolling up in a ball as a defensive position. Gardner uses this as an analogy for his arguments, and I think it works fine. For Gardner's purpose, what he calls a hedgehog is someone who views all intellect as a single piece, and a fox is someone who sees intellect being fragmented into several components. Quoting from the text, the hedgehog not only believes in a singular, inviolable capacity that is a special property of human beings, often as a corollary, they impose the conditions that each individual is born with a certain amount of intelligence, and that we individuals can in fact be rank-ordered in terms of our God-given intellect or IQ, end quote. And in relation to what he terms foxes, Gardner says, an equally venerable tradition of the West glorifies the numerous distinct functions or parts of the mind. In classical times, it was common to differentiate between reason, will, and feeling. He goes on to remind us that in medieval times, the liberal arts studied in universities were composed of a trivium of individual subjects considered the lower division of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and an upper division quadrivium of mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and music. With this, Gardner builds the idea 
that this disagreement between hedgehogs and foxes goes back for centuries. He overviews some modern protagonists for each viewpoint. I will share a couple of those names now in case you wish to look them up for yourself and see what they have to say. In the hedgehog camp, he mentions Charles Spearman and Jean Paget. Among the foxes, he mentions L.L. Thurstone. I have not looked into any of their research or arguments. And at this point in the text, he does not go into any detail. I believe he does later in the text. About their individual arguments, other than to say they fall on one side of this issue or the other. Moving along, Gardner is rather open that his theories are still under development and more research needs to be done. He does say quite a bit more about this, and I feel that his tone reflects a proper view of how science should be practiced. He is not dogmatic. He mentions people who disagree with him without criticizing them or their intellect, and he does not act like his theory has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. This is important because there are abundant examples of people who abuse the scientific method and draw absolutes from science that is poorly executed and hardly conclusive. One of my favorite quotes from one of the textbooks on my bookshelf is, Studies do not prove anything. In particular, one single study is not enough to draw broad conclusions from. This happens more than it should, and too many people will hear a phrase such as, Studies prove so-and-so, and not question it. I will not go on a full rant on that today. Just understand that when anyone says studies prove, there is a good chance they are not applying science the way it should be practiced. You have to amass a great deal of data to form a conclusion, and a single study is almost never enough. So in my view, Gardner's tone about this is very mature, and sadly, it is refreshing. Quoting from the text, In what follows, I argue that there is a persuasive evidence for the existence of several relatively autonomous human intellectual competencies. He goes on to say, These are the frames of mind of my title. The exact nature and breadth of each individual frame has not so far been satisfactorily established, nor has a precise number of intelligences been fixed." I feel that is a very good statement that shows a great deal of integrity. In my career in strength and conditioning, more times than I can count, did I read an article or a book or watch an interview where someone was drawing broad conclusions from a single study or expressing as fact an idea that was still very much in a theory state. A lot of harm has been done this way. A lot of public health issues can be traced to bad science. This is not just my opinion. There have been many good books written on this issue. Gary Tobbs and Nina Teichels. I probably pronounced that wrong. Her last name is spelled T-E-I-C-H-O-L-Z. Are two authors who have done some good work exposing bad science, much of which has become public policy. Returning to our text, Gardner points out that in day-to-day life, what he sees as somewhat autonomous intellectual competencies work together, making their autonomy difficult to detect. But he insists that when the correct observational lens is used, these separate intelligences are easy to identify. His purpose in writing the book 
is to present his case from multiple intelligences and to collect information into one volume that was not previously easily accessible. He goes on to list his four major goals in writing Frames of Mind. First, Gardner seeks to expand the purviews of cognitive and developmental psychology, which he tells us are two areas he feels closest to. Second, he seeks to examine the educational implications of his theory. In other words, testing students and helping them specialize in areas of particular competence at an earlier stage of development. This makes a lot of sense to me, and honestly, it is something I wondered about decades before I knew about this research. To me, it is obvious that people have different gifts, different interests, and different physical characteristics. Again, going back to my strength and conditioning background, I feel that most people have some kind of athletic gift. The problem is, in most athletic programs, the coaches in charge have very specific interests and a narrow approach to their method. The students who respond to their preference get labeled as good athletes, and the ones who do not respond to their preference get labeled as poor athletes. I have gone into detail about this before, so I will not belabor the point. Third, Gardner is hopeful that his work will inspire educationally orientated anthropologists to develop a model of how intellectual competencies may be fostered in various cultural settings. For his final point, I will quote from the text. Finally, this is the most important, but also the most difficult challenge. I hope that the point of view that I articulate here may prove of genuine utility to those policymakers and practitioners charged with the development of other individuals. A little later, he continues, Too often, practitioners involved in efforts of this sort have embraced flawed theories of intelligence or cognition and have, in the process, supported programs that have accomplished little or even proved counterproductive. That more or less wraps up the first chapter of the text. In chapters 2, 3, and 4, Gardner explores some foundational ideas about intelligence, ranging from psychology to ways people process information, genetics, views on the ways in which the brain is believed to be organized, research that has discovered interesting facets of the actual structure of the brain, and a discussion of what defines and qualifies an individual intelligence. There is a lot of information here. I will share a few quotes to get some of the main points across. In a section on Jean Piaget, again, apologies if I mispronounce that, a Swiss researcher who began his career around 1920, Gardner goes into more detail about failings he and others see with standard IQ tests. Quoting from the text, First of all, the IQ movement is blindly empirical. It is based simply on tests with some predictive power about success in school and, only marginally, on a theory of how the mind works. There is no view of process, of how one goes about solving a problem. There is simply the issue of whether one arrives at a correct answer. End quote. He goes on to say, a couple paragraphs later, Much of the information probed for an intelligence test reflects knowledge gained from living in a specific social or educational milieu. For instance, the ability to define tort, 
or to identify the author of the Iliad is highly reflective of the kind of school one attends or the tastes of one's family, end quote. There is a section on what Gardner calls signal systems that is very interesting. In the opening comment of this section, a lot of Gardner's issues with the status quo of human intelligence are laid out in a good quote. Sharing that here, as we have seen, the IQ, Piagean, the information processing approaches all focus on a certain kind of logical or linguistic problem solving. All ignore biology, all fail to come to grips with the higher levels of creativity, and all are insensitive to the range of roles highlighted in human society. Consequently, these facts have engendered an alternative view that focuses precisely on these neglected areas. End quote. All of that is important to this book, but I feel like this statement, all are insensitive to the roles highlighted in human society, deserves special attention. One of the things about Gardner's approach that I find refreshing is he is not restricting the idea of intelligence to a traditional education. I think a lot of this comes from considering other cultures that do not have access to a standard Western education that display high levels of skill and knowledge in certain areas, such as his example of the 12-year-old islander selected to learn how to navigate the waters of his region comprising a large area with around 500 individual islands, with a combination of geography and stars. Also, like my earlier comment about enlightening conversations I have had with farmers and other blue-collar workers, there are an abundance of people out there who possess remarkable intelligence, but who do not possess a traditional education. There is a lot of information in each of these chapters, and it would probably be possible to do an episode on each one. I do not feel like that is strictly necessary, and if we approach our discussion this way, we would end up with a 14 or 15 week review. For today, suffice to say, Gardner gives a thorough review of the subject of intelligence and what feels to me like a balanced discussion for both the hedgehog and the fox viewpoints. Wrapping up today, I will give a quick overview of the individual intelligences we will be discussing over the next few weeks. I think it is worth mentioning that Gardner titles this section of the book, The Theory. He does, of course, believe in his theory, and he has spent several chapters building his case. But as I said earlier, there are plenty of researchers, especially these days, who are very willing to talk about their theories as if they were proven so for me, this attitude stands out. The very first intelligence Gardner discusses is linguistic intelligence. Following that will be musical intelligence. Next will be logical mathematical intelligence. Next is spatial intelligence. This is followed by bodily kinesthetic intelligence. And finally, we have what he terms the personal intelligences. My intent is to take each of those a week at a time, and then the final week of this series, we will discuss the conclusion of the book. I am about halfway through the book in my own reading, and so far it has proved to be very interesting. This concludes today's episode of The Literate Caveman. Barring any unforeseen life events, I should be on a regular once-a-week schedule, at least through this book. If you are interested in further discussion, 
I will most likely post a few short videos on my YouTube channel, The Literate Caveman, about quick insights I find in the book, plus other lessons from literature that can be applied to daily life. Thank you for listening. Now go read a book.